And we want to get back into our Doctrines of Grace study, this 11th lesson, and we're almost done with this topic of unconditional election. When we're all said and done, I think we'll be about halfway through overall, and I know that kind of seems daunting. It's a big study, but we're, we're moving right along. And we, we've, we've found out and learned quite a bit about God and his election so far. We found that our God is a choosing God. In the very act of creating, God was making choices. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. There's no thwarting his will. And ultimately, he orders all things according to his will. And that includes man's salvation. And should that really surprise you? As we study scripture and find God orders all things after the counsel of his will, would you expect man's salvation to be an exception to that? God created this world for his glory, created us for his glory. He redeems us for his glory. And none of this was by accident. It was all according to his plan. And that, of course, it goes for and includes who gets saved. God chose before the foundation of the world some to be redeemed, to be the objects of his mercy, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And after much Bible study, we found that God makes that choice unconditionally. And you guys know well by now, that's really where, where the debate is, how he makes that choice. Both Calvinists and Arminians, at least on paper, believe that God makes such a choice. It's just how. And we found he does so unconditionally. God chose the elect according to his own will, his own plan, his own purposes. The elect, they met no conditions in God's eyes. They weren't better. They had nothing to, to merit themselves before God. No reason for God to choose them. God did not foresee their faith or, or anything else in them. God simply chose them according to his own will, his own purposes for this, this universe he decided to create. And so this is the doctrine of unconditional election. And over uh, several lessons now, we've, we've studied both sides and we found the other side, conditional election, that really wilts away like grass in summer, while unconditional election is firmly planted in the soil of Scripture and it, it stands strong. Now this doctrine, though, we know it's offensive to man, to the natural man. They, they don't like it, they hate it, it's offensive to their mind. God's sovereignty, God's election, and especially unconditional election, really rubs the natural man the wrong way. People like to believe that they're in control of their lives, they're the master of their own domain. But when they find out that's not what the Bible teaches, even though you may still act and choose that God is ultimately in control, they, they don't like it. it. It offends their sensibilities, their, their sense of freedom and independence, their, their own value and worth. We humans, being at the top of the food chain, I think are accustomed to, to feeling we're in charge or we're sovereign over our lives and the planet, so to speak. But when we find out what we're really not, it troubles the natural man. It's really what it comes down to, though, is will you simply accept what the Bible says or not? We found that the Arminian argument for conditional election is just not based on Scripture. It comes from human reasoning. It's a, to fit a system based on these presuppositions. They start off with this overarching presupposition that man has this libertine or libertarian free will, which is not taught in the Bible. But that's their starting point. So from their starting point, unconditional election is ruled out, that God could choose. He could actually choose. That, that's ruled out from the beginning. It can't be true. So even if, even if the Bible seems to teach that God actively chooses, it can't really mean that, they reason. It has to be reinterpreted to fit their system and their human reasoning. 
And this is where the invention of conditional election came from, which they conveniently insert into all these passages on election, even though it's not there, as we found. And they make it to be where God's not really choosing us, we're choosing him first. God is merely choosing those whom he foresees their faith. It's just an invention. Hopefully you can see, through, though, through our, our many lessons before this, all of our Bible study, that's just not what the Bible teaches. To the contrary, Scripture is crystal clear that God elects people unconditionally, based on nothing but his own will, his own purposes. And, and seeing how clear it is in Scripture, it really draws a line in the sand, even for Christians. Namely, do you, do you submit to God's word or not? Do you really submit yourself to what the Bible teaches? If someone can say, here's a chapter, here's a verse, here's where it says God chooses according to his will, and that was all lesson 10. Will you submit to that? And believe it or not, you may not like it, you may not think it feels reasonable, or maybe you still have questions, but will you ultimately submit to what the Word says? And I hope you do. That's a defining mark of a Christian. Thankfully... I know that's a testimony of many people who've come to, even in this room, believe in the doctrines of grace. As you know, in, in the circles of other churches or Arminian churches, I would say election is probably the least popular topic of discussion, or the, the most hated concept uh, of those other guys, those evil Calvinists. And, and it's just uh, hated. Many even hate the, the whole concept of election so much that they, they throw the baby out the bathwater. And it's, it's kind of ironic because, as we've pointed out, Arminians on paper, they're supposed to believe in election, you know, like Arminius did, Wesley did. But so many today, they're, they're so opposed to it and also so ignorant of Scripture, they, they claim to not believe in election at all. And then you really know you're dealing with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. But nonetheless, many people have testified they were raised in such churches, they were raised to, to hate Calvinism, to think election is, a, is this devil's doctrine, it's a damnable doctrine, it's so, so evil, so wrong. And then they started to read the Bible, and they just started to study the Bible, and they found like, well, but it's, it's right here, and it's right here, and it's just kind of everywhere. This is a big God, he's a sovereign God, and what about this verse, what about that verse? It's just kind of all over the place, and they just couldn't help it. They couldn't help but believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. It's just all over the place. And they submitted to the Word. And so all that being said, I hope you now, after all the study we've been through, and we've covered now the bulk of the Bible study on election, that you now submit yourself likewise to the clear teaching of God's Word and embrace the truth of unconditional election, which is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. It leads to a greater exaltation of God, among other things. But we're not quite done, though, before we move on to the next major topic is limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. That's coming down the pike. But before we leave the election world behind, we still, we've still we left unanswered some questions and some potential objections to what we've studied. And those who reject unconditional election, they raise objections against it, hoping if, if they tear it down enough, it'll make their own side look better, which they need. And at the same time, though, there are some who accept unconditional election. They believe in it, but they still have questions. Maybe something doesn't make sense, or they're just they're curious or questioning, and that's, that's good. And so these questions and objections, they overlap. They come from different spirits, usually. One person hates it. One person just wants to know the truth. But nonetheless, uh, there's answers, and we're going to cover those tonight. Answers are readily found in Scripture to the questions and even objections raised against unconditional election 
Unconditional election, it's based on Scripture. But that doesn't mean it's not reasonable. It's not based on human reason. The system is not, it didn't, it didn't come from human reason. But that doesn't mean it's illogical or unreasonable. It actually makes great sense in Scripture. It comes with all the reasonableness of God, and Scripture itself gives reasonable answers to all the questions and objections people raise against it. And so in this lesson, we're going to look at some of the top, the major questions and objections leveled against unconditional election, and we're going to provide some answers. Now, you guys know me as I started to get into it. It got large, so it's a two-parter now. <laughs> we got the first three tonight, the next three next week, but that's just how it is. It's, I think it's worth it, though, because it's a worthwhile subject overall. And so we're going to start tonight with these, the first three, which are, in many respects, the big three that I know you've heard. Some of you have already mentioned them just in passing or in question or in comment. And so we're going to talk about them. Number one, unconditional election is not just. Unconditional election is not just. First one, you typically always hear. And the objection goes like this. You know, if God is sovereign in salvation, he's unconditionally choosing some and not others. Well, it just doesn't seem just for God not to choose everybody. Or in other words, how is it just for God to choose to punish these people for their sins, but then he chooses to, to let these people go? And why, why, why doesn't he? He has the power to choose everyone. He has the power to save everyone. But he doesn't. He chooses these people unconditionally, but these people not so much. Doesn't seem just. Well, it's a common objection uh, against leveled against unconditional election. There is, a, some would say, a, a perceived injustice with God and his being, you know, arbitrary in this choice. It's, it's not. It's not just. But it's just that it's a perceived injustice at best. God is never unjust. And Paul himself answered in advance this objection. He knew this was going to come up, and so he answered it himself in advance in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. So you can write down the verse and then turn to Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. This is where I said, if you're here last time and you remember, that we would be, we kind of ran out of time to get into much of Romans 9 and some other passages. Well, between this week and next, we'll, we'll find our way to them. And we start here in Romans 9, verse 14 through 18. So we'll see how Romans 9 answers a couple of these objections off the bat. And since it's so important, I'll give you some of the background that I didn't, wasn't able to give for the sake of time last time. Before we get to Romans 9, just you might remember Romans 8 culminates the, the first you know, chunk of Romans. And it culminates with this great truth at the end of chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that, that's a great truth based on justification by faith alone and through God's grace in Christ. And so it's good news. Nothing can separate us from God's love. God's calling and choosing, they're irrevocable, they're sure. His adoption is not revoked. You know, once, once you're justified, I mean, you're, you're saved. However, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul addresses a potential objection that would come up to what he just said, namely, what about Israel? And it goes like this. 
you could imagine someone saying like, hey, I thought, okay, Paul, you just said nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. Okay, well, what about Israel? I thought God, I thought he called and chose Israel to be his special nation. Didn't he elect Israel nationally? Yes. But it sure looks like they've been rejected because at the time, you know, Israel was unbelieving. So it, it looks like they've been rejected. And you just said nothing can separate us from God's love. But when it comes to Israel, it sure seems like they've been separated from God's love. So how do you account for that? How do you explain Israel? If nothing can separate us from God's love, it, it seems like that's not true because look at Israel. So you get the, the reasoning there. And that's, not, that's what he gets into in Romans 9 through 11. Some people think Romans 9 through 11 is like, it's out of place. And Romans just all of a sudden starts talking about Israel. But actually it fits perfectly into the flow of everything he's just been talking about. But that's not the case. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul explains how, although national Israel is hardened in unbelief, this corporately elect nation has not lost their place before God. They are cut off right now. Corporately, as a national entity, they are cut off in unbelief right now. But there's still a future for national Israel, precisely because God's calling and choosing are irrevocable. And furthermore, there's also an elect remnant of saved Jews within national Israel. And so God's promises have not failed. God promised to keep a remnant, to preserve a remnant within as well. And that's what he's doing. So as Romans 9 begins, Paul highlights this fact that even though Israel nationally is in unbelief, God has preserved a remnant of believers who comprise true Israel. And these true Jews consist of not just physical descendants of Abraham, but spiritual descendants, those who were of the same faith as Abraham. So, for example, verse 8, he gets into and he says, after talking about uh, Abraham and Isaac. He says, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. You probably know the, the drill here. Just because you have Abraham as your forefather, that doesn't mean make you saved. That doesn't make you a, a real child of God. You have to have the same faith as Abraham. It makes you a spiritual descendant to be saved. And side note, that's open to Jews and Gentiles. He'll talk about later. Now, after this, though, Paul, he goes on to give an example of how God chooses some and not others in this regard. Uh, and how Israel has been cut off right now and, and the Gentiles have been chosen. He'll get into that. He'll revisit that later in chapter 11. But he mentions right here, though, in chapter 9, how he gives an example through Jacob and Esau, how God chooses some and not others, just like he's done with this remnant in this age. So look at verse 10. We'll build up to it. He says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, we actually did study this, these verses last time and mentioned these are clear verses giving an example of unconditional election. God chose Jacob, not Esau. He had nothing to merit. He wasn't technically the firstborn. He came out second. But he didn't choose Jacob based on anything within him. 
There was no forcing faith or works. I mean, they weren't even born. This, this was a choice made in the womb. This truly unconditional. Uh, it was entirely according to God's purpose. Verse 11. One was chosen. Why? Simply so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, namely God. It's just God's choice. It's just a simple, unconditional choice. One was chosen to inherit God's promised blessing. The other was not. Just that, that's just it. That's unconditional election. And, and among other verses, it's an important one, but there are many that teach the same thing. If you actually weren't here last week, the website is up to date. So lesson number 10, I mean, just have at it yourself. We looked at many significant verses which establish this truth. But after this, so that's, he, he kind of leaves it there, but... Paul immediately thereafter anticipates an objection that some might say after hearing this, that Jacob was chosen according to God's purposes, God's will. Namely that God's not just. That's not, that's not right. That's not just to choose Jacob over Esau like that. Well, uh, he responds and, and answers the objection in advance in verses 14 through 18, which is what we're, we're aiming at. So let's look at that now. Verses 14 through 18. After this, he says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. In these verses, notice Paul explains the twins, again, they they had done nothing good or bad. So for God to choose one and not the other, on the surface, it can seem unjust, And as a quick side note, the reason Paul is even saying all this is because he understands that there could be objections to unconditional election. If if the other side were true, the Arminian side were true, conditional election, that God chose Jacob because he foresaw his faith, there would be no objections for Paul to answer. I mean, the, the the mere fact that he's preemptively answering objections shows he knows unconditional election, uh, it's true, and people it could rub people the wrong way, but so be it. He doesn't apologize for it, but he does address it. And he says in the strongest way, you know, is there, is there injustice with God? Does this mean God is unjust or unjust because he chose one unconditionally before they were born? And in the strongest way possible in the Greek, as you probably know, he says, may it never be. Paul himself teaches this is not a justice issue. This actually has nothing to do with God's justice. It's a mercy issue. It's not a justice issue. It's a mercy issue. God is not treating anyone unjustly. He's not doing anyone any wrong. Those who are unsaved, they're not being robbed of justice. They're merely not receiving God's mercy. But that's up to him. He is free to give mercy to those whom he wants to give mercy to. No one's entitled to mercy. That's the whole point. And God justly deals with all sin. In short, God is never unjust. To say that God is unjust is to say that he's not rightly dealing with sin and evil. But that's not true. 
all sin and all evil are justly dealt with in the end and judged by God. Unbelievers, they will pay for all their sins in hell. Justice is served. Believers, Christ paid for all their sins. Justice is served. God's being fully just. He chose to pardon them, but he's still perfectly just. He, he chose to have mercy on some. You can't call him unjust, though. Justice was served for all sin. God sweeps no sin under the rug. He never looks the other way. All evil is judged and accounted for. Now, regarding election, the fact that God chooses to save some and not others, again, does not concern his justice, but his mercy. That's up to God, though. He's free to show mercy to all people or no people or some people. And he's equally just, perfectly just every time. If God wanted, he could have left all humanity to go to hell and pay for their own sins. And he would have been perfectly just. He could have instead chosen to to save everybody and pardon everybody in Christ. And he would have been perfectly just. Or he could have chose to save some in Christ and leave others to pay their own penalty. And he's still perfectly just. You may not like the sound of it in your human sensibilities, you could say. But you can't call God unjust. He's perfectly just. The objection fails. An illustration is the presidential pardon. You know how when a president typically leaves office, he pardons some criminals for various reasons. It's not an act of injustice, though. It's an act of mercy. And it's entirely up to the will of the president. It's up to him to do as he sees fit. And regarding the prisoners who are left behind, all the guys who weren't pardoned, not a single one of them can say they're being treated unjustly. They're still getting justice, right? Their justice is still served. Just because they weren't shown mercy, that doesn't mean they weren't, they weren't shown justice. They were. They're still, they still broke the law. They're still going to get what they deserve. Justice is still served. Likewise, God's pardon, it's an act of his mercy, and it's entirely up to his will. And the unsaved cannot say that God was unjust in dealing with them because they're still getting what they deserve. The pardoned receive mercy in Christ. That's up to God's free will. That's up to his hidden purposes. But justice is, is always served. Make sense? As you guys always know, questions and comments, if you ever have them, feel free to throw them down. But So the first objection falls quite flat. You can't ever accuse God of any injustice. He's always perfectly just. All sin, all evil is accounted for. Whether a person will pay for it themselves in hell or Christ will pay, justice is served. It really, it's a mercy issue, but that's up to God. Now related is number two. Unconditional election is not fair. Unconditional election is not fair. And these two always go hand in hand. And in in a way you could say they overlap, but we'll treat them distinctly because they are still distinct. Unconditional election is not fair. Of course, after hearing that God is perfectly just in his sovereign choice, people respond, well, at least it doesn't sound fair. You know, they first object, well, that's not just. And, and you answer, well, actually, it's perfectly just. It's just merciful. Well, then they'll say, well, fine, but it still doesn't sound fair. It still doesn't sound right. It just, 
something sounds wrong here. How can God save one and not another? And more so, if God has sovereignly determined our destiny by his choice or lack thereof, how can he still blame people for sin and unbelief? In a sense, an unbeliever has no choice but to be an unbeliever, but he's still judged. So how's that fair? They would say, right? If, if this election is true, this person's unelect, so they have no chance of being saved, no real chance of being saved. So how can they still be judged when they had no chance? That doesn't seem fair. I'm sure you've heard this, right? Or it's, this rings a bell to you. Or maybe you've thought this, which is not, it's not wrong to have these questions. But it just so happens that Paul also anticipates and answers this objection in the very next passage in Romans 9, verses 19 through 24. So you can write that one down here, Romans 9, 19 through 24, the very next passage. So he just, he just gets over talking about, so you've got Jacob and Esau with God choosing one and not the other, and even mentioning how Esau was rejected and, and in a sense hated. And then you have him talking about Pharaoh, back in verse 17. He says in scripture uh, to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. That, that brings up the concept of a reprobation, which is coming up in a few weeks. So we'll come back to this whole Pharaoh business and that the hardening of Pharaoh. What's up with that? Is God like actively hardening him and, and basically predestining Pharaoh and others like him to go to hell or what? What's up with that? That's coming. So just hold off on that. We'll, we'll devote a good chunk of time, maybe a whole lesson to that. But still, it stands, verse 18, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens. He, he withholds mercy on whom he desires to the same effect. And so Paul understands, verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? I mean, if, if this is the case, how can God still hold people accountable? Because if, if it was his will to not show mercy on Pharaoh, Pharaoh has no chance, technically, right? So, I mean, that's not fair. Paul anticipates, and then Paul answers, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath? prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. After that, he goes on to talk more about Jews and Gentiles. But see what he's saying here. He raises the objection in verse 19. He anticipates it. Why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? In essence, that doesn't sound fair, right? You get it. And then verse 20 and 21. O man who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why'd you make me like this? Will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? You see what he's doing? Instead of actually directly answering, Paul rebukes the spirit of the question. You have no more right to question God's dealings with man than a piece of clay has a right to question the potter. God's the potter, you're just a piece of clay. You, you have no right to question the, the creator, the, the potter. You are nothing in his hands compared to him. This is the infinitely supreme God. He's creator, you're creature, and there's an infinite chasm between the two. So how can you dare pass a judgment call on God's fairness? Pastor, uh, would that go along with the concept of a low view of God? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I was going to point that out. I mean, if you have someone with a low view of God and a high view of man, they're going to have this objection because that's like, with that, I, I thought, we're the pinnacle of creation. We're man. We're mighty. But compared to God, you are a piece of clay. You're, you're nothing. So what, who are you to call your creator into account? Joe, a question or comment? We are born sinners. We are born with all sinners. So God is just if he annihilated all of us and put them into hell. Yeah. Still, he is fair. Yeah, God would be totally just and totally fair to save nobody and leave all people to their sin. And that's going to tie into this. But for now, understand that God being the creator, and you know, meditate on this. God being the creator, created everything in this world, gives him full rights and privileges over the whole creation. He can do with it whatever he wants. And he's always fair because he's, he's God. He's the arbiter of fairness. Fair in human sense, that's that's subjective for humans. What is fair to God? Whatever he does is fair. Because he's God. He's right. He's not unjust. We've covered that. He's not evil. We know that. He's good. And whatever he does is is fair. You're just a piece of clay. You know, when you're a kid, maybe in I don't know, like a pottery class or playing around, you have you you have a piece of clay. And if you ever had pottery class, I mean what do kids make? Back, back in the day, ashtray. I don't know why. Today that wouldn't fly, right? It's either an ashtray or like a cup that no one really wants for your mom or something. But let's say you have a lump of clay and you divide it in half. You make the ashtray and you make the cup for drinking, the ashtray for, for cigarette butts. One is for dishonorable use. One is for a, a, a lovely you know, gift to your parent or something like that. Would you say you're being unfair to the, the, the clay that was devoted to the ashtray? No, no, no one ever even thinks like this because it's just a piece of clay. Nobody cares. It's just clay. It, it's just, it's nothing compared to us. Now we like to think of us humans, it's insulting to say we're, we're, we're clay like that. Well, before God, yes, you are. I mean, we, we are just creatures. He's creator. He's infinite. We're finite. That doesn't mean we're valueless. Don't get me wrong. We have value because God gives us value. He's imbued value into us. But inherently, No. Uh, it, this only highlights God's glory in redeeming a bunch of worthless clay. Uh, and we'll talk about that more later. But the point is, it, you the clay, you can't, you can't talk back. You're just clay. And this is, to the contrary, a high view of God, a low view of man. This objection melts when you have a high view of God and a low view of man. It's like God is supreme. What can you say back to him? You, don't, you, you can't even come close to fully comprehending his ways his purposes, his secret counsel. It's like an ant trying to comprehend our, our civilization. Just not even possible. It's like zero possibility. 
And then in verse 22 through 24, a bit of the bigger picture is revealed. Again, we'll read that. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So he's talking about unbelievers. God is willing to judge all unbelievers instantly and make his wrath known. He could have. He could have annihilated Adam and Eve the moment they sinned. He would have been perfectly just or us the moment we're born or anytime he sees fit. And he'd always be just. But God has endured uh, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Again, side note, the whole prepared for destruction, that's all in the lesson on reprobation. We'll study that thoroughly when we get there. So we'll leave that for now. But he says, though, and God did this. God endured these vessels of wrath with, with much patience. He delayed judgment. Why? To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And here's where Paul, you could say, more directly answers the question. First, he rebukes the spirit of the question. It's a question based on unbelief. But now he does expose, you could say, a reason. Why would God save some and not others? It's not arbitrary. You may seem like that to you, but again, you're just clay. But to God, he has purposes. If God were being only just, he would have judged all sinners instantly. The fact that any are allowed to live, it's already mercy. But at the same time, though, God is not arbitrary. He has purposes in saving some and not others. Namely, that he would be glorified and magnified through the display of his wrath and justice and power and might and mercy and grace. The vessels of wrath, they give occasion for God's justice to be put on display, his wrath, his judgment, his power, his might. Vessels of mercy put God's mercy on display and love and compassion and grace. And this is all to the praise of his name, which is why he does everything rightly so, being infinitely supreme and worthy of praise. If you have a tiny view of God, this won't make sense, and you'll reject this. You just, if, you have a, if your view of man is higher than God, I don't know what to say to you. You're going to be lost. You're going to be confused. You'll wrestle with this. All I can say to you is go back to Scripture and read your Bible and, and see God for who He is, supreme and majestic, transcendent. And we are that speck of dust, and He is ordering things for His glory. And that's good. That's right because of His supremacy. And then this will make sense. And even if you don't have the ability to fully wrap your arms around it, and can we? No, we can't. But at the same time, you'll, you'll have a comfort and a peace knowing, well, God's supreme, and he has purposes. And he's putting his glory on display in salvation and in judgment. And you can say, well, to God be the glory. In his judgment, to God be the glory. In his mercy, to God be the glory. And it's a deeper truth, you could say which some can't handle. They choke on the meat and, and they, they, they choke on it and they reject it. But this is what the Bible says. You can read it for yourself. It's not actually complicated. The language is clear, right? So the conclusion of Romans 9 is that God, he doesn't need to answer to us humans about fairness. You can't hold them accountable to your concept of fairness. God's perfect in all his ways. 
and just in all his judgments. And he has purposes in choosing some and not others. And these are revealed here, the, the revelation of his attributes. We can add a little bit more, though, just to top this off. I want to also point out, though, keep this in mind, from a human perspective, so just not thinking about God now, just a purely human perspective. From our perspective, are we fully in control of our choices and actions? Yes. Again, from our perspective, I feel like I'm in total control of my choices and actions. Like, should I open the Bible or close the Bible? It's up to me and my will. I feel fully in control. And from our perspective, yeah, we, have, we feel like we have free will. We free like, feel like we, we make all our decisions. And in our perspective, we do. Again, in our perspective, can we, can we see God's hand actively like opening doors and closing doors and, and you know, ordaining things? No, we can't see that. No, Scripture gives us eyes to see, of course. But from, man, from a purely human perspective, it, feel like, it feels like we're just living our lives doing our own thing, choosing everything we want to do. Like, it's all up to us. That that's our human perception, right? And that's actually on purpose. God has designed us to operate as if we are in control. But think about this. How can God be fair in condemning people when they were not elect? That was part of this question, right? How can he be fair in condemning people when they weren't elect? They have, they have no chance, so to speak. Well, the, the answer here that we will add is, Because those people, they still willingly chose to sin and rebel and not believe, right? They they still chose those things. They they chose to sin and to not believe and to rebel against God. And so God is fair in judging the non-elect because they're still morally responsible creatures. God made us to be morally responsible creatures. Having a will, and we do have a will. Now, the unelect, they have no knowledge that they're unelect. So that status plays no factor in their choices. It's not like they're saying, well, I know I'm unelect, so I might as well not believe. They have no knowledge of any of this. It has no bearing on their choices. And that's not why they're condemned. When you read scripture, every single example of someone being condemned, what's the reason given in scripture? It's never because, well, they weren't elect, so they go to hell. That's never said. It's always because, well, they didn't believe. They sinned. They rebelled. They didn't turn to Christ. It's their fault. But they're held responsible because they chose these things. Altogether, we can say those who question God's justice and God's fairness reveal they're they're just fools. They're really taking for granted God's mercy and God's grace. And uh, in reality, you don't want God to be only just or only fair if god were being only just and and only fair well then everyone would go to hell because that's that's simple justice that's that's simple fairness everybody just goes to hell that's because that's what everyone deserves because and they deserve that because they have sinned god is not condemning anyone unjustly and they're all held accountable for their choices and actions the fact that god chooses to spare some and intervene And that's just up to his grace and mercy, and he's free to do that upon whom he desires. That's his prerogative as the creator of the universe. You should not question or doubt him. Rather, just praise him for his grace and his mercy. 
Now, we'll, we'll revisit the aspect of us having a will in a second. But just to wrap up this number two, I want to include one more verse here real quick. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 6. So you write that down. Let's turn there as well. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 6. And let's just kind of cap this one off. Turn to Matthew 20. Now, you'll, you'll remember this, I bet. It's the parable of the vineyard. One among many of the parables involving a vineyard. You may have wondered, you know, what, what's he teaching here? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to read. Let's read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 6. Christ teaches, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? That is, uh, take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to, the la- to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. It's actually quite a bit going on here. We're not going to study the whole thing, but make the simple point of what Christ is teaching. We can relate. I mean, look, we have day laborers today, right? You go to Home Depot and you want to hire a day laborer, they're there. And that's, that's how they make their living and, and good for them. And you can imagine a guy gets hired at, you know, maybe have an, an 8 to 5 work day. And you hire a guy at 8 and you hire a guy at 4 p.m. One guy works the whole day and one guy works one hour and you would expect like, or I'm sure they would expect the guy worked the whole day. I, I better get a full day's labor, you know, full day's wage and, and that's fair. And the guy working one hour maybe expects like, well, maybe I'll get 10 bucks or something or whatever, 20 bucks. I don't know. But then the, the, the hirer, the guy gives them both the same, a full day's labor. And you, you get this. This resonates. It's like that. That seems unfair. But you realize it's not unfair at all. And the point of the parable is Christ is teaching nobody gets less than they deserve, which is justice. Nobody gets less than they deserve. But some people get more than they deserve. That's mercy. That's grace. Is Christ teaching the principle of God's mercy and grace with creation, with people? No one gets less than they deserve. Justice. Some people get more than they deserve. Grace. 
That doesn't make God unjust or unfair to give some people more than they deserve. That just makes him gracious. He says, verse 15, generous. Remember, this is all according to God's will. He says, what I wish, I wish to give this person. Who's it up to? God's will. Another verse teaching this is all up to God's will. But all it, all it does is say God's gracious. God's merciful. You can't say he's unjust or unfair because he chooses to give some people more than what they deserve. The presidential pardon comes. It's not unfair. It's not unjust. He's simply generous, gracious, merciful. And no one gets less than what they deserve. But to, for God to give some more, simply up to his will to show grace for his glory. Does that help? That's a helpful way of thinking about it where Christ himself explains it. And maybe you didn't you know, really put that together, but this verse it teaches more, of course, about salvation by grace in there. It, it's quite a significant parable, but you get the basic principle, right? Well, now we're going to... Yeah, Dave? I just have a question. Um, so I assume I'd be in error <clears throat> if I understand it and I submit to the Scripture and I understand it, but I still don't think it's fair. Yeah, and that's because I mean, you're... Even mercy to some doesn't seem fair to me. And yet I understand it and accept it. Good. Yeah, I, and I get what you're saying. So Dave's saying, well, okay, I get it, I accept it, I believe it, but it, I still don't feel it's fair. And, and here's why, you know. If we had, it's because we're, we're not God. We don't think like God. We're creatures. And we, we would reason, and we get this, right? You have 10 kids. And, and, you have the, and they're all in peril. And you have the ability and the power to save them all. I mean, they're on a bus and it's dangling off the cliff. You have the ability to save them all and you choose to save five. And the others, you allow to perish. Like, what kind of person would ever do that? It's crazy. Like, what, what human would ever do that? And that defeats our sensibility of love. Uh, so how could God do that? He chose to create all these people, and yet he didn't choose to save them all. Why would he not do that? First, we're actually talking about this later. First, that goes both ways. So first understand, the Arminian has to answer that same question because God still could have saved everybody. He could have, remember, foresaw a world where everybody chose to believe and created that world, but he didn't. He created a world which he knowingly knew not everyone would believe. So God created a world where he knew that bus would fall off and five kids would die. So they've got the same exact problem, right? You understand that. Okay. Um, so why would God do that, though? That's where we put our, our hand over our mouth and say, I don't know, we're not God. But I know he's, he's God, he's supreme. Romans 9 gave us that window. It gave us that little peek and said, what if God was willing to do this? Why? To, to make his glory, his justice, his wrath, his mercy known. And that's what God does. God is glorified as his attributes are put on display in creation and he receives praise. And we can say if, if, if God created a world in which no one was condemned, there is, his, his wrath and his justice would never be known. They would never be on display. And God is glorified by the display of his attributes and and that's, that's kind of as far as we can take it, though, and say, well, God, is, God created an occasion for his glory to be made known. And he's supreme. And I, I will, like Job and, and like, like Paul, at some point we have to cover our mouth and say, who are we to answer back to the creator? It, it, this will, this, this is, it's good to bring it up. This is why, though, people reject it, right? Because, and this is why I said earlier, it draws a line in the sand, 
for some, it, it's they struggle. It's like it's hard to believe that because it defeats my human sensibilities. Uh, but it's the problem is it's just so clear in Scripture. <laughs> it's just so clearly taught in the Bible. And uh, so, what are you going to do? And uh, well, for me, I'm going to just go with what the Bible says because that's God's revelation. It will test you. And and it, as we've seen, there are Arminian. The whole system was created because of this problem. And it was created to try and get God off the hook for being this cruel parent. But it's not based on scripture. And they still have the same problem to account for that the whole system fails to account for. And we talked about all that in the past. So it's better to just say what the Bible says and leave it at that. And uh, it's okay to live with some some mystery. We can't fit God into a box. We're not going to understand his, his ways. The secret things belong to the Lord. His ways are higher than our ways. There has to be a level where you accept that and you, you praise him for what you know. Tim? But, you know, to me, it's, it's because being in business for myself also, uh, you know, you, you get this, over the years, you get the the understanding that it's equal pay for equal work, you know. Yeah. And that's the way it is now, but in God's eyes, it's not that way. You know, it's, sure. You know, because that's the way we live now. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's up to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I have a question or a hand or shall I? I just, my heart just melts in a way when I realize that I don't deserve salvation. And so, realizing that I think the leveler is we should all die, we should all be killed, we should all go to hell right now. And the fact that he's kind to any of us, we can praise him for. And like Eric said, it's a mystery. And so, if anything, it just it really affects me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Jill, I mentioned if you couldn't hear just what David says true, but it granted, you know, when you reflect on your own unworth, you realize, well, who am I to even be saved? And I could actually change the scenario with the kids on the bus because the reason that gets our heartstrings is we see them all as innocent, but we're not innocent. Like, they, you know, we're as well if it's a bus full of prisoners, you know, murderers and rapists and pedophiles. And you save five and lay at the other five. You probably wouldn't feel as bad for the other five to fall off the cliff. Like, well, they got what they deserve. It's a bit of a different situation when you think that we're not innocent. We're guilty. We deserve, all people deserve justice and wrath. And for God to save any is the real miracle. We'll actually talk about later. The real question you should ask is, why does God not save everyone? The real question is, why does he save anyone? And that's, that's the display of mercy. Well, good questions. Let's finish up now. We'll have time real quick. Uh, Number three, unconditional election eliminates free will. Unconditional election eliminates free will. It's a third common objection. And you can put in parentheses, you know, and, and makes us robots, turns us into robots. Unconditional election eliminates free will. And you can see, you know, makes us all like robots or puppets. That's how people would phrase this. I've heard many, many times. And the objection goes like this. It's another common one that if all this stuff is true, then we have no real meaningful free will and we're just like robots. It leads to determinism, which means we cannot make real willing choices, or fatalism, which states that our choices don't matter, one or the other. And we're simply slaves to God's will. If God wants us to be saved, we'll be saved. If he doesn't want us to be saved, we won't be saved. Therefore, we're, we're just like puppets, we're robots, nothing matters. Our choices don't matter if we even have a choice. It's either determinism we don't, uh, or fatalism. We don't have a choice or it doesn't matter in the end.
This is simply, though, it's just a purely philosophical objection to the teaching of Scripture. And it comes down to authority. And it's best answered with Scripture. Or simply put, this, that's just not what the Bible says. Like, I understand the objection, but that's just not what the Bible teaches about humans. In other words, we are not puppets, we're not robots, because according to Scripture, we have the power of personal choice and individual thought. We can make willing choices, and our choices matter because God says they matter. That's what the Bible says. Like, we make willing choices, and they matter. God says they matter, and God defines what matters. He defines what's real. In other words, where does the Bible say that a choice ordained by God is not a real choice? Understand, we talked about this a long time ago, but Arminians, they define free will as the power of contrary choice. Meaning, to be free, you have to be able to choose otherwise. You have to have the ability to choose otherwise. But where's, where's that definition of free will in Scripture? Like, Can you show me a chapter and a verse where that is how our will is defined? Because you won't find it. That's philosophical. That's not biblical. Instead, biblically, free will, the, the free will that we do have, and we have, we have a concept of free will. And it's merely defined as the ability to act according to our desires. With that definition, we have free will. The ability to act according to our desires. Now, like we talked about, that doesn't mean we're free to choose God. Remember we talked about limited ability? Because of the fall, our ability has been limited. So yes, we are free to act according to our desires and our ability. But we've lost the ability to choose God and to, to believe. And so God must still intervene and save us. And that's, we covered that in the past. But free will, biblically, it's the ability to act according to one's desires. And in that regard, we're, we're, we're still free. As all people, they act according to their desires. And this gets us back to what I said before. This helps explain how God can ordain our choices and yet there's still real choices for us. Because we have no knowledge of God's plan. We're merely acting according to our desires. And so God can still hold us accountable for our choices because we made the choice without any knowledge of his plan. So like an example. You know, you, when you get married, you choose your spouse. You marry that person because you want to. I guess maybe unless it's an arranged marriage. But otherwise... You choose, you get married because you want to. You, you make that choice according to your desires, and it's a free choice. You know, let's just say, theoretically, nobody's making you do it, and, and that's why most people get married. They want to get married. In God's eyes, though, according to his eternal plan, he ordained that choice. He ordained, you know, when that, this, you know and this year, this person will get married to that person. Uh, for better or for worse. Doesn't mean every marriage is good just because God ordained it. But nonetheless, he ordained that choice. He knew you would do that. He planned you would do that in his plan of all history. But you had no knowledge that this was God's choice. You have no knowledge of God's hidden plan. And you merely acted according to your own will. And therefore, your choice, from your perspective, was entirely free. Which is why you're still responsible for your choice even though God has ordained it. And this applies to all of our choices, including our choices to sin and our choice to accept or reject Christ. The person who rejects Christ, they may be unelect, 
And God knew that they wouldn't believe. And, and theoretically, from God's eyes, they have no chance of believing. But that person doesn't know that. They have freely chosen to reject Christ, and therefore they're held accountable for that free choice. The Bible says our choices are real, even though God is working in and through them. Therefore, our choices are real. We have to let God and his word define our reality, not our own rationalistic speculations. The Bible teaches we have to make real choices that will have real results, some lasting for eternity. So the call to John 3.16, believe in Jesus, you have to make a choice to accept Jesus. And that's, that's a real choice. It's ordained, but it's still a real choice that you must make, and you will be held accountable for how you make that choice. Now, that actually, this, this topic can get quite advanced, so I'll leave it there. But if it piques your interest, you want to learn more about how God's sovereignty and our freedom and responsibility come together in Scripture. It's, the doctrine is called concurrence. And if you want to learn more, you can come see me, and I'll give you the, the advanced stuff. I'll, I'll save, the, save the rest for some other time. The doctrine of concurrence, though, will, will take you a lot further with that. It's very interesting and, I think, helpful stuff to learn how God is sovereign, yet we are responsible at the same time. Well, we got a few more to go, three more to go, which, like I said, we'll cover next week as we're uh, fresh out of time, right on time, though, more or less. So if you have your own questions or objections or concerns, hey, write them down, bring them next week. We might finish a little early next time, and we can have uh, even more time for discussion if you so desire. Hopefully helpful for you to think through the issue yourself and uh, profitable at the same time. So let me, let me pray for us for our time. All right, God, we reflect on what we've learned this night and just, and just reflecting on what we've studied in the past. We've, we've done the Bible study on, on your word, on election. We, we submit to it, and, and as we confess in our human sensibilities, it can rub us the wrong way. We, we can find ourselves or others can find themselves questioning or just wondering about your justice, your fairness, how we can be held accountable and responsible with, with these truths, Lord, yet we find your, your word provides answers. And, and we affirm you're, you are just. You are always just. You are always uh, true and right in your judgments. And everyone gets what's fair. Some get more, but that's, Lord, just your mercy. That's your grace on display. And we here in this room, as we've come to believe in Jesus, we have, by grace, received more. And we have to confess, we didn't deserve that. We, we know we deserve judgment forever. Why you chose us, we don't know. We, we, we don't have access to that. That's your hidden counsel. But we know you've made us vessels of mercy, that you will display your glory through us. And so we, we want to be those vessels of mercy and, and rightly reflect back to you the glory you deserve. So we say thank you, Lord, tonight for, for saving us, for calling us, for choosing us, for electing us. It's just it, all the glory belongs to you. And I pray through this study you can expand our horizons and give us a bigger understanding of you and, and a, a fresh understanding of our God as a big and mighty and supreme God. Yet the fact that you would still save us, uh, that, that you draw near to us, it marvels us as well and, and boggles our minds as well. Just let these truths dwell in our hearts and, and produce a, a contemplative worship of awe, where we're just in awe of you and in reverence of you as, as the Supreme Lord and God, as you are. To you be the glory, Lord, in your justice and in your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.